Well, good morning. So glad to sp uh, be able to spend some of your holiday weekend with you here at New City Church. Um, when I was in college, one of the things that I learned quite quickly about myself is I am the type of person that most people do not like to watch movies with. And some of you might be the same way. The problem was I ask a lot of questions. And so things are going on. I'm asking this, I'm asking this. Christine and I, my wife and I started dating our freshman year of college. So we got to the point, I guess in college, you watch a lot of movies where my friends are like, we're not sitting next to him. So like, we'll sit in a line. Dylan sits at the end. Christina, you have to sit next to him and we'll like leave some space because we don't. And I'm, for me, the problem is like, I, I want things to be realistic. And so if a character says something that they wouldn't actually say, I'm like, why would they say that? Or like, I want to know what's happening. And so people often would say to me, Dylan, we don't know. Watch the movie. Like, that's why we're watching. We know as much as you do, but like, I have to know. I hate not knowing. And so, uh, to my delight and surprise, about a month ago, I came home one day, and our daughter Finley is seven, our son Roman is four, and Christina said they were watching, the kids are watching a movie, and at one point, Roman kept asking so many questions that little sweet Finley looked at him, paused the movie, and said, Roman, I don't know. Watch the movie. And I was like, my man, right, right there. Because right, like me, like him, he's like, we're watching something, and when you don't know what it means, you don't know what's happening, and you, you get caught on something, it gets confusing, and it might, be able, it might even get frustrating for you. And today at New City Church, we are looking at one of the most foundational aspects, or the most foundational aspect of our faith, and this is the death of Jesus. And so today, the question that we are going to look at, the one I think that many of us have, maybe you have this morning, is this. What does the death of meat of Jesus mean for us? Like, why did he actually have to die? Like, what does it all mean? What, what, what's going on here? I know that he did it. He rose from the dead and we worship him and that's great. But, but why? And what does his death specifically mean for us? And, and why did he have to do it? That's the question that lays before us this morning. What does Jesus' death mean for us? And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 15. If not, there's a black one around you you can turn to. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. We are in the second to last week of the gospel of Mark. And when I realized that the, today we're looking at the crucifixion of Jesus, when I realized it was happening on a holiday weekend, I was a little bit bummed. Uh, but I think God still has some great things to say for us. So I'm excited for it. And now that being said, I know many of you have tomorrow off. And so today, we actually have a lot of work to do to understand what's actually going on here, because many times when we read familiar passages, we can uh, maybe skip over or, or, or think that it's saying something that it's not. And so today, we're going to actually try to understand what does this actually all mean. And so today, again, we're in the last, second to last week of the Gospel of Mark, which is one of the stories of Jesus' life. Uh, two weeks ago, we saw Jesus be arrested by uh, the Jewish leaders, put on trial. And then last week, we see him get, get thrown to or get moved to the trial for the Roman leaders with Pilate, who was uh, the governor of the region, overseeing this trial because the Jews could not uh, uh, cannot execute capital punishment because they lived in the Roman Empire, so they had to get the Romans on board. And so we saw that trial and what happened to Jesus there. And today we get to look at Jesus actually being crucified. And so here we go again. What does the death of Jesus mean for us? That's what we're looking at. Mark chapter fifteen, verse twenty. It says this: After they had mocked him, this is the Roman soldiers. They stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him. Now, again, we talk about this a lot, and so we can forget like how big a deal this was. Crucifixion in the Roman world, in the ancient world, was the most humiliating and horrific way to die. 
In Rome, again, it was a punishment for non-citizens, typically for slaves, uh, for violent criminals, or for prisoners of war. Now, Jesus is not any of those things, but that was typically what it was reserved for, the worst of the worst. And what would happen is that when you were crucified, you would be paraded through the streets uh, on the way to your cross for the people to see and to hear what you had done, also as a deterrent to let people know that if they do that sort of thing, that will also happen to them. Now, many times, again, you were flogged and beaten as well before your crucifixion, which as we read last week, that is what happened to Jesus as well. And depending on how severe your beating was and how they actually crucified you, you could survive for a few hours or up to a couple of days on the cross. Uh, Again, the beating determined that. And also if you were actually nailed to the cross, so you would have been, your legs and arms would have been roped to the cross, but not everyone was always nailed to the cross. And so if you were nailed to the cross and you were beaten as Jesus was, your lifespan on the cross was not typically as long as others. And you would typically die by one of two ways, Uh, heart failure because of all the blood loss and the trauma that your body is doing, your heart would give out on you or you would die from asphyxia or suffocation because on the cross you would have to push yourself up to breathe. At some point you would become so exhausted that you wouldn't be able to do it and you would suffocate to death. And so this is what Jesus is on the way to. Then it says this in verse 21. It says, They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Siren of Serene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And so again, just as happening here to Jesus, after you were beaten, you would then carry your crossbeam. And so maybe you're familiar with a lot of the arts or, the, or TV shows or movies about Jesus' crucifixion, and he's like carrying a whole cross. That's not what it would have happened. You would just be carrying the crossbeam that your arms would have been on. The horizontal beam typically was already placed into the ground, and so they would just kind of put you onto it when you got there. But you would carry your crossbeam on the way to the, cro- to the crucifixion. Everybody would see and hear what you had done. Jesus' case, he was likely beaten so badly and that he was so weak that he is unable to carry his crossbeam. And so they force a man who was on the side of the road to take it for Jesus to bring it to his site of the crucifixion. Now, it's just worth pointing out because Mark mentions it here that we don't know anything about Simon, the man that held Jesus' crossbeam, other than the fact that he was told to do so. But Mark also includes the names of his sons here. And this is significant because, again, Mark originally wrote this gospel to the believers in Rome, and therefore it is highly likely that this Rufus that, uh, that Mark points out is the same Rufus that the Apostle Paul in his, uh, his letter to the Romans, uh, chapter 16, when he says, give my greetings to all these various people, Rufus is one of those people. It is highly likely that this is the same person, that Simon, or at least, at least his sons, if not Simon himself, became a follower of Jesus after all of these events, after what they saw and they heard. Then it says this, verse 22. It says, They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. So Jesus gets to the cross as is custom. He would have been brought outside the city walls to be crucified. And wine and myrrh was a sort of like a narcotic mixture and also likely would have given the person who was beating and about to be on the cross a, a sort of energy boost to kind of prolong their suffering. Jesus uh, declines this mixture, perhaps at least in part, to fulfill what he told his disciples at the Last Supper, that he would not drink the fruit of the vine again until he returns. What Jesus is going through here, he is fully conscious of his suffering. And then it says this, verse 24, 
Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them uh, to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him was the king of the Jews. That was the, the charge that would have been placed on top of his cross for people to see. And they crucified, they crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus is crucified. Now, again, if you're familiar with the Gospels in the New Testament, you know that Jesus's, or Mark's accounts are typically brief and quick. And so Mark gives us little details of all the beating and the sufferings that Jesus took part in, other than to say it happened, and then this is what happened next. His clothes are, and belongings are then taken, and you'll see a few references to Psalm 22 that Mark mentions throughout Mark chapter 15 in the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, Psalm 22 was a lament written by King David about suffering. And what the gospel writers are alluding to when they kind of combine or they kind of reference Psalm 22 multiple times in Jesus' crucifixion, what they're saying is that Jesus is the ultimate example of someone who suffers. In fact, we'll see in a second that Jesus himself is also going to reference Psalm 22. But for here, in Psalm 22, verse 18, for example, it says this, they divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. So an astute Jew would pick up on this, that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the one who would suffer for his people. And then what has happened, he's placed between, between two criminals, which again, if you've been with us a few chapters before, two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, at one point kind of are arguing with Jesus and they ask Jesus if we can be at your right and at your left in your glory. And of course, Jesus tells them they do not know what they are actually asking for. Right? Are they willing to actually suffer and give their life like Jesus does to follow him. And again, one of the other themes that you see often in the crucifixion account is the reference to the suffering servant in Isaiah. So in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 50 through 65, the Old Testament prophet talks about the suffering servant for the Lord, of which Jesus says he is the fulfillment. In Isaiah 53, it says, because he was willingly submitted to death and was counted among the transgressors. And that is what is happening here. Jesus willingly, silently goes to death, does not defend himself from any accusation, even though they are false accusation, and is killed between two criminals. Now, what's interesting here is all this is done to mock Jesus. If you're here last week with the Roman trial and the Roman soldiers, you saw this as well, that Mark, Mark is actually showing us something ironic. He's actually showing us that Jesus' crucifixion is his enthronement. And here's how you know this. He is called the king of the Jews by Pilate. That's his official charge. Even though if you were here last week, we saw that Pilate also didn't really think he was guilty of anything, but he thought the religious leaders were just envious of him. And so he has to give him some sort of charge. He's called king of the Jews. He's given a crown of thorns. He is beaten. He's dressed in a purple robe, mockingly by the soldiers. They pay homage to him like they would a king. You see all these things mockingly done to Jesus, things that you would actually do to to a king. And in fact, in verse 32, we'll read in a second, he's also mockingly called king of Israel by the people who are passing him by. And so while his crucifixion actually looks terrible, what you actually see in the gospels, what Mark is trying to present to us is this, that Jesus' death was his coronation, not his humiliation. It was actually his coronation, his elevation that he has come and fulfilled and done what God has asked him to do. And while it looks terrible and it looks humiliating and it looks awful, he is actually being elevated to his rightful place of king over everyone. 
Now, again, what's interesting is that this, his crucifixion, even a couple of decades later, by most people, was not seen like this. In fact, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, it'll be on the screen. Paul, who's writing about in 50-ish AD, about 20 years after these events, talks about how the crucifixion is actually a stumbling block for people. He says this in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 23. Uh, he says, For the Jews ask for signs... And the Greeks ask for wisdoms, or the Gentiles, the non-Jews. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Right? So to the Jews, if you were hung on a tree, which is what, Jesus, what happened to Jesus, what he was accused of, you were considered cursed by God. So how can this God-man, this Jesus, actually be the Messiah if he was hung on a tree? That makes no sense. Now, of course, the irony is, is he actually was cursed. He took our transgressions. He took our curse on the cross for us. He was cursed by what he did. But again, from a Jewish perspective, if you died in that fashion, God was cursing you. So you can't be what God was asking for. You can't be God's only son. Or if you're a Gentile, a non-Jew, again, a Roman crucifixion meant that you were humiliated, that you did something terrible, right? No strong people who are in charge, who are innocent, die on a cross. It was actually a stumbling block, right? It didn't actually look like on the surface, it looked like all was lost. But in reality, Jesus was doing something foundational and amazing that many of those people could not comprehend at the time. And in some ways, I mean, if you think about certain things not being what they appear, right? On the surface level, it seems his crucifixion was a humiliation. It's actually his coronation. I don't know if you've ever had times in your life where something happened to you and you thought it was one thing and then you realized it was something else. This happened to me a couple of weeks ago, or a couple months ago. We moved into our new house and uh, it was like a week after we moved into the new house, we get this text. Christina and I were at a uh, rehearsal dinner for a wedding. Uh, from our babysitter that the power went out. And I was like, oh, that's a bummer. But we live like three minutes up the road right off of Glenwood. And so it's like a major road section, inter inter uh, intersection way. And so I'm like, certainly it's going to be the priority. So by the time we get home, hopefully it'll be fixed. And so we're driving home and all the lights are out on Glenwood. And I'm like, oh, that's not good. We get to our house and I'm like checking the updates and it keeps saying like in an hour or in two hours is going to be fixed. And I'm like, I'm not sure about this, but it was hot. It was like upper 80s in our house. And so the kids were already asleep, sweating a lot, but they were asleep. asleep. Uh, Christina then tries to go to sleep. And I'm like, there's no way. Like, I am not, I, I don't sleep well. I have to be cold. Like, I'm not, it's 90 degrees. I ain't sleeping. And so it's pitch black out. Like, everything's out. The street lights are out. Like, there's nothing to do. And so I get my phone, and I turn on the hotspot, and I get my iPad, and I'm watching something on Netflix. And all of a sudden, I hear, like, this noise by the, in the front of our house. Like, someone was knocking or, like, tried to open the door or threw something at our house. And my first thought was, like, that's weird. But... In my mind, I'm thinking two things. One, houses make noise. This is a new house for us. Maybe this is like one of the noises the house makes and I got to figure out what it is. And I was also thinking like, yes, our neighborhood is pitch black, but like statistically speaking of someone trying to like choose our house to break into instead of all the houses around us, like it's probably not happening. At least I was telling myself this. And so I'm like, we're fine. So I, I press play, start watching again. A few minutes later, I hear it again. And I'm like, that happened. It is our house. Something's going on. And I, I don't know what it is. And I'm like, it happened. And I'm like, it sounds like it happened upstairs. But like, surely no one's like hiding out in our house. It's been hours, right? So I go to the front door, like peek out, you know, the window, can't really see anything. And then I go upstairs and I go into, walk into Roman's room. And I notice, and my heart's kind of like, what is happening here? Is like someone like have a ladder. And I notice that his bed is right up against the wall. And he's got like these fake wood blinds right next to. And his foot was like pressed up against it. And so I, I moved his foot and it made that noise. 
And I was like, oh. Like he would hit it. Like as he would hit it, the house is completely silent. And like that's what it was, right? I thought something crazy is happening. And it was just that. It was nothing at all. And on the, the flip side, again, Jesus' uh, crucifixion here, how could that happen if he is who he actually says that he is? People have no idea that this is actually his crowning achievement for us. And so Mark continues by saying this in verse 29. It says, those who pass by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, ha, the one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests and the scribes were mocking him among themselves, saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. Now, what's saying here, because Mark's mentioning it, it's worth pointing out, Jesus was accused of saying that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Now, what he actually said is the temple will be destroyed and I will rebuild it in three days. We talked about this a few weeks ago. What he's referencing there is that the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed. It actually ended up being destroyed. And what he's saying is that I am the true holder of God's presence. You see, people would go to the temple to be near God's presence, but I am God's true presence. And those who follow me also get to be little temples and take God's presence out and to the world. This is what is happening here. And again, we see references to Psalm 22. So in Psalm 22, verse 7, it says this, everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. This again is what is happening to Jesus. Even both normal people and the religious leaders are mocking him. It's so bad that even the crucified criminals are joining in. Like we've heard stories of what you've done and what you've said. Like, how are you not going to actually save yourself, right? If Jesus really is who he says that he is, he needs to prove it and save yourself like you did all these other people. And I think if we're being honest, if we're being honest, this is exactly the type of thinking that fits well in our current cultural moment where we, over anything else, believe in self-satisfaction and self-fulfillment and doing things that make yourself happy, right? If you actually have the ability to do these things, then you would do it, right? This idea of suffering or pain or putting other people's desires above your own um, is to reject a false god of our day. Like we say, as long as you don't hurt other people, which we never define what that actually means, do whatever you want to do to make yourself happy. And if anything's holding you back, you just need to push through and change it, right? It's about doing what is best for you and what you want and what will bring you happiness. And again, it's not bad to have joys in life and hobbies and things that we want to pursue. But again, our, the common cultural threat of our moment today is that if you don't do what makes you happy, you're wasting your life. You're wasting it. And this really is what they're saying to Jesus, right? If you could save yourself, if you actually had the ability to do it, well, you would, because why wouldn't you? I love what one biblical commentator says, I put on the screen, he says this, talking about this passage of Jesus. He says, the taunt assumes that salvation of self is the greatest good. The surest vindication of a would-be Messiah or a would-be Savior is therefore the ability to save himself. Jesus, however, has not taken upon himself the mission of self-help or self-fulfillment. He will be, as he said in Mark 10, a ransom for others. 
You see, there might be a reason that they might not understand as why he would not come down up from the cross because it's not about him or proving himself. It's about what he is doing for us. Or put another way, what we see happening here is that Jesus' death shows us that God doesn't act how we think he should act. Jesus' death shows us that God does not act how you and I might act if we were the ones that were in control. Again, these people have absolutely no idea why he won't do what they say. There is no reason in their mind that they can think of, of why this man, if he really is the Messiah, and if he supposedly did all these things for all these other people, there's no reason why he would not come down from the cross if he could actually do it. But as we read this passage, I think this is a humbling reminder for us that just because we can't think of reasons about why certain things are happening or why God would allow certain things to happen or why evil and suffering exist, just because we can't think of a reason, that doesn't therefore mean there isn't one. They could not think of a reason, but it doesn't mean there isn't one. It reminds me, Alvin Plantica, who is a world-famous philosopher, he's in his 80s now, he's also a Christian, when he's talking about the problem of evil... He one day wrote this. It'll be on the screen. He says this. If while camping, you look into your tent for a St. Bernard, which is a dog, and you don't see one, it is reasonable to assume that there is no St. Bernard in your tent. But if you look into your tent for a noceum, an extremely small insect with a bite out of all proportion to its size, and you don't see any, it is not reasonable to assume that they are not there. Because after all, no one can see them. Many assume that if there were good reasons for the existence of evil, they would be accessible to our minds, more like St. Bernard's than like no But why should that be the case? Now, again, this doesn't answer why God allows evil. This doesn't answer to these people why Jesus isn't coming down from the cross. But it does show us that just because we can't think of a reason for something or why God would do something, it doesn't therefore mean there isn't one. It could mean that God knows a lot more than we do. So again, this, for this quote example also doesn't help us with the answers, our own answers of sufferings and doubts. But this and Jesus' crucifixion should humble us, that we have no idea what God might be doing. And when we assume we do, we might miss out on what he's actually inviting us into. It reminds me of a quote of this, this journalist in the mid, early to mid-90s. His name was Edward Murrow. And he talks about what happens when people assume things. He said this, the Wright brothers, who were the, ones, the first ones to fly, their first successful flight, it was almost a minute long. He said it this way, the, first, the Wright brothers' first flight was not reported in a single newspaper because every reporter knew what could and couldn't be done. No one believed anybody could fly. Even though they had sent things out, they had invited people to come to Kitty Hawk, nobody came because people can't fly. That's not a thing that happens. No one's successfully been able to do it, and so they missed out. But Jesus does death shows us that God doesn't act and do how we might think he should act and do because we don't know what he knows. These people have no idea what his death and his ultimate resurrection is actually accomplishing that would not happen if he came down from the cross. Jesus' goal was not to prove anything to anybody but to lay down his life so that people might experience the grace and the kingdom of God. And that's what he's doing here. And so if we continue to read verse 33, it says this. He's hanging on the cross. He's dying. Verse 33. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. So it says darkness here appeared. Now this isn't, sometimes people try to 
give natural reasons of what they might have saw. So they might say like a, uh, an eclipse. However, the Passover, which is when this is happening, always hap happened around a full moon and eclipses don't happen at a full moon. Or they'll say maybe it was a dust storm that happened in the Middle Eastern in the Palestinian area. But Passover happened again. This crucifixion happened after the six months of their wet rainy season. And so dust storms also don't happen in the March and April area of this time. And so what the Mark is trying to tell us, what the gospel writers are trying to tell us when they reference this darkness is that this was a supernatural darkness that God allowed to happen, that this darkness fell. And this is important because all throughout the Old Testament, when darkness appears, it's because God's judgment is here. So really quick, for example, in Amos chapter 8, verse 9, one of the prophets says this, it'll be on the screen. And in that day, this is the declaration of the Lord. I will make the sun go down at noon. I will darken the land in the daytime. Now, again, in Amos's uh, context here, he's referring not to the crucifixion, but to a judgment happening to Israel's unfaithfulness that is happening during the time of Amos. Yet, Mark is referencing here, and the other gospel writers reference here, to clearly show that the world is lamenting and that the world is experiencing divine judgment. They have killed the Son of God. Darkness is here. And then it says this, if we keep reading uh, in verse 34, Mark chapter 15, it says this, and at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Or tra some translations, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? Now, again, during, this is significant. During Jesus' trials with both the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, and the Roman leaders, Jesus was silent against all accusations. He's getting all these false things said to him. Again, if you were here last week, Pilate is amazed because if Jesus would just defend himself, Pilate could let him off the hook, but he won't. And so Pilate has no choice but to continue with what is happening here. He never says anything until now. Here he finally cries out. No doubt he also is referencing Psalm 22 because Psalm 22 verse 1 is literally, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? All of the references to suffering of Psalm 22 is now being applied to Jesus. Now, why would Jesus say this? Well, he would say this because for all of eternity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have enjoyed perfect unity with one another. And now what is Jesus doing? Jesus is literally experiencing hell on our behalf. Hell at its core is total conscious separation from God. That's what it is. And that's what Jesus experiencing, is experiencing here as he takes on the sin and the shame and the condemnation of the world. The father is turning his face away from him. The father is separating from him. A holy, righteous, and just God is leaving the presence of a man full, fully condemned and sinful for us. Just like all the Old Testament sacrifices, you would take a perfect and spotless lamb or whatever the animal was for whatever the thing you were sacrificing for was. This is now Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice for us. Now, again, what's interesting is that Psalm 22 actually ends on a hopeful note. Psalm 22 actually anticipates divine, uh, divine intervention and rescue, which, of course, what does Jesus do for us if not divine intervention and rescue? But for now... He suffers, for now he is condemned. And then it says this, verse 35. It says, when some of those who were standing there heard this, they said, see, he's calling for Elijah. 
Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, and offered him a drink. And said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. So again, they're continuing to mock Jesus. They have no idea why he wouldn't come down if he has the actual ability to do so. And then they mock him here talking about Elijah. Now, perhaps they misheard him when he was saying Eloi. Perhaps they thought he was saying Eli as an appeal to the prophet, the Old Testament prophet Elijah, to come and rescue him. Uh, This also would make sense because there was this kind of Jewish belief that Elijah was the prophet who would help you in times of crisis, that you could cry out to him and he might help you. And so they assume, well, this is what Jesus is doing here. And so they mock him again. Again, he's also offered another mix of wine, perhaps to encourage him to continue so that they can continue to mock him. But instead of taking that wine or doing anything else, this is what happens next. Verse 37. It says, Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw he breathed his last, he said, truly this man is the son of God. And so Jesus is killed. And in Jesus' crucifixion, you actually see two, I'll try to do this quickly, two significant things that happen. Number one, it says the temple curtain was torn. So here's just a picture of the temple real quick so you can understand what he's talking about. Put it on the screen. This, was a, this is a reconstruction. The temple no longer exists. It was destroyed in 70 AD. This is about what it would have looked like in 70 AD. It's about uh, three football fields, uh, I don't know, one way, and five football fields the longer way. So there you go. So it's, it's really big. Lots of people are there. And in the middle, you see kind of a structure, which is the actual temple. So there's different rules about who could go where in the temple grounds and, and who could go where. And then when you got to the actual inside of the temple, you can go to the next slide. This is what it would have looked like. Uh, you can see the first third of the temple, there's this really big curtain, that purple thing in the middle is the veil. The first two thirds of the temple, priests would come in and do various things. And in the back third, behind the veil, the high priest only once a year after a series of various things could go into the presence of God. This is where the presence of God resided. Only one priest once a year could actually go into that. When Jesus dies, what happens? Well, the gospel writer said that this veil was torn. Now, why is that significant? Because what is happening here is that the presence of God is no longer found in a place, but it's found in a people. That those who would follow and believe and trust in Jesus would have God's spirit placed inside of them. This is why Paul in various letters in the New Testament talks about us being uh, followers of Jesus being the, uh, the temple of God in the world. That God's presence is no longer something you have to do and do these sacrifices and these rituals to go and experience. That Jesus is the final sacrifice. He is the final ritual to end all sacrifices and all rituals so that we could experience his presence. Or put another way, Jesus' death was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. None more were needed because the perfect lamb of God without spot, without blemish, without sin has been slain. Our atonement, our sacrifice has been given. And so here's what this would mean, that no longer are all the sacrifices and the purification rituals to go to the temple to draw near to God's presence necessary because God has done everything necessary for us in Jesus. Now, to be clear, God is still holy. He is still just. Sin still still, still, still creates a barrier between us and God, but Jesus is the one who has closed that gap. Jesus is the one who makes us clean. Not our efforts, not trying really hard, not maybe in our day going to church or reading the Bible or praying every night before you go to bed or donating money to the church. No, those things might be good, but they are not save you. They do not redeem you. 
Jesus does. He was, his death and ultimate resurrection was the sacrifice to end all sacrifice. This is why last verse we'll read in Hebrews chapter 10, the author of Hebrews says something extremely radical when he writes this in verse 11. He says, every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, this Jesus, this God who has come, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Here's the thing. Priests never sat because their job was never done until this man, the perfect and final sacrifice for us. And so at his crucifixion, one significant thing, the veil is torn. God's presence is available to anyone who would trust and repent and follow him. And the second thing that's extremely important and quite astonishing is what happens with this Roman centurion. Where this Roman centurion somehow, probably a mixture of a lot of things, Jesus' final words and also him watching the trial and the beating and all the things happening with Jesus. Uh, Mark doesn't tell us this, but in the Gospel of Matthew, it tells us that there was an earthquake that also happened at Jesus' death, uh, perhaps because the whole world, or at least their area, turned dark in the middle of the day for multiple hours. He is the first person to fully proclaim who Jesus is in the Gospel of Mark. He is the first person to actually do it. When he says, surely this man was the son of God. Now, why is this significant? Well, this a centurion has seen a lot of death. So this crucifixion, a crucifixion itself wouldn't have necessarily made any big difference to him. Uh, for a Roman, if you're interested in, in how Roman society and uh, army stuff worked, a centurion was the highest level that you could get to if you weren't just granted a position. So if you were a, of noble or uh, noble rank or society, upper class, you were given certain military positions just because who you are. If you're a centurion, what that would have meant is that you join the army as a low rank and you have fought your way up through the ranks. You've not died in any of the battles. You are respected. You're a leader. And so you have seen a lot of stuff. This no doubt is not this centurion's first crucifixion. He has seen this many times, but yet something happened as he's watching all of this for him to confess that Jesus is the son of God. And again, this is a big deal because if you're a Roman soldier or just a Roman citizen, but particularly someone who is a high ranking Roman official, the only son of God in your realm and in your life is Caesar. One who is over Rome, he is the only son of God. So for you to say that is not a good thing for job security or even your life. And what's also fascinating here is that this centurion, therefore, stands in stark contrast to all these people, many of the Jews, people who condemned Jesus, who wanted to see some great power of demonstration before they would believe. This Gentile non-Jew, Roman soldier, the, la the least of the people that you would expect to follow God and to honor him or to receive forgiveness confesses Jesus is the true Messiah. And as we get to the end of Mark, we are reminded of how the gospel of Mark said in Mark chapter one, verse one, this is how the gospel began. It says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And up until this point in the gospel of Mark, no human being had this fully figured out. The disciples at one point called Jesus the Christ, which is a good thing. But in the Jewish understanding, the Christ or the Messiah wasn't necessarily divine. Now, Jesus was divine. He showed us how the Messiah is divine. But their understanding of whoever the Messiah was when he came is not necessarily going to be God himself, but just a strong figure. And so what we're here with is they struck with a strong contrast, right, between the centurion and everyone else, 
the disciples, right, who had been taught and followed Jesus to the, or told to, and were even told, hey, this is going to happen multiple times. I'm going to die. I'm going to resurrect. They were confused and they leave in despair. They betrayed Jesus. None of them are by his side. The religious leaders, they rejected Jesus. They mocked Jesus. The Romans are the ones who actually killed him. And this man has the eyes open to see who Jesus actually is. And so, again, the question that we laid before us this morning is this. What does Jesus' death mean for us? Why did he have to do it? What was its purpose? And here's what we see. That Jesus' death gives us His death gives us life. God has come and sacrificed himself so that anyone can experience his love and his grace. The centurion, the thief on the cross, I don't know what changed, but at some point the other gospels tell us that the thief on the cross is like, hey, remember me in your kingdom. And what does Jesus say? Today you will be with me in paradise. Not because of what you have done, but because of what I am doing for you. No matter who you are or what you've done or what's been done to you or how you've behaved or what you thought or how old you are, it is not about you and your efforts and your trying really hard. It's about this man named Jesus who came to do for you and for me what we could not do for ourselves. He is the final atoning sacrifice for all sin so that God can look at us in the midst of our shame and our sin and our brokenness as my son as my daughter, full of the, all the inheritance that are coming to Christ are also us, that we can partake in Jesus and in God's kingdom by what Jesus has done for us. Jesus takes the wrath of God so that you and I can experience the love of God. He takes the sin and the condemnation and shame so that you and I can experience God's presence because he loves us and because he came. The good news of the gospel is this. It's not what you have done or what you try to do. It's Jesus is in our place. That Jesus has came and lived the life we could not live, died the death that we deserve. Them. Again, no matter who you are or what you have done, you can experience the love and grace of God. If a Gentile Roman soldier and in first century Rome, uh, Rome to a Christian is like the farthest away you could get from someone who deserves God's grace, if a Gentile Roman soldier can experience the love and mercy of God, mercy of God so can you. Anybody can. God loves you so much that he came. And so we celebrate, again, if this is where the story ends, this isn't good. But next week we get to celebrate Easter in September as we get to see what happens When Jesus rises from the grave. But for now, here's what we see. That Jesus' death gives us life. He took the shame. He took the punishment. So that you and I can receive the mercy of God.